You're listening to Key Conversations for Leaders. This is episode number 48. Welcome, everybody. In today's episode, we'll be talking about supporting women at work with Kate Eberly Walker. We're going to be covering what it means to be a good boss, identifying unconscious microaggressions and what to do about them, the hidden realities of being a woman in the corporate world, and the power of being proactive and asking for what you want and much, much more. Leadership is about vision. It's about creating a vision and sharing that vision with others in a way that inspires them to walk with you towards its fulfillment. Along the way, leaders encourage, motivate, guide, and even challenge people to bring their best each and every day. And it's all done through conversations. That's what this show is about. Better conversations for better leaders. Hey, everybody, and welcome to Key Conversations for Leaders. I am your host, John Ryan, and today we have a very special guest, Kate Eberly Walker. Kate is the CEO of Presence Learning, the leading provider of online special education services for K-12 schools. In this role, she leads a majority female employee population whose mission is to not only provide students with learning needs, but to provide a flexible career path for nearly a thousand special education clinicians, many of whom are working mothers. Kate became the CEO of the Princeton Review at age 39. Prior to that, she navigated the male-dominated investment world at Goldman Sachs, working her way up through management roles. She shares tell-it-like-it-is advice with her fellow managers in her book, The Good Boss, Nine Ways Every Manager Can Support Women at Work. Welcome to the show, Kate. Thank you so much for having me. Now, I want to start by asking, you know, can you tell us a little bit about your journey to becoming CEO of Presence Learning? Yes, absolutely. So I, I have to say, I when I started my career, I never contemplated that I would become a CEO of anything. Um, I really, I loved finance. I loved math. I loved numbers. As you said, I went into investment banking. I started my career at Goldman Sachs and I spent about five years there. Went to business school and then uh, and then came into the education industry right out of business school and ended up working for nine years at Kaplan, uh, a large educational company, and I led their M and A. So I did all their acquisitions, venture investment, all of that, and you know, really got to know everything about the business of education, and you know got to study ultimately hundreds and hundreds of education companies through that job. It was a really cool job, and um, it wasn't until my later years there that I realized that I, you know, I just had formed like really, really strong opinions of my own about what made for a good company and how a company should be run. And, you know, I mean, when you do mergers and acquisitions, you're always putting together these plans and working with management teams. And, you know, something just evolved for me along the way where I started to realize, well, I want to do that too. So I left Kaplan. I joined IAC, which is a Barry Diller's company. They had recently bought tutor.com, their first education business, and they were building up a team to grow that and invest in more education companies. And that was kind of this very pivotal career moment for me because, you know, as I said, I was starting to change kind of my own aspirations and what I wanted. And then uh, the magic was I went to work for a female CEO for the first time. And Mandy Ginsburg, our CEO at tutor.com, uh, was, you know, really, really a mentor to me and a role model. And just kind of it was at that point watching her learning from her that I thought, oh, this is something 
that I want to do that I can do. And, you know, I was lucky enough to have that mentor who, who saw me as her successor and, and developed me. So it was through that, that, that I, we, we bought the Princeton review. I became the CEO and that kind of put me on my path to the C-suite. Congratulations on that as well. Up to that point, prior to seeing um, your, your mentor, it sounds like in a way, like, was there any reluctance? Like, did you ever see yourself in, in, as the head of the organization? It was really funny. I, I really never thought about it. I just thought that I, you know, I guess I thought I was pretty good at M&A and I was, you know, a good negotiator and, you know, I knew my numbers and I thought, you know, this is, this is my skill. This is what companies would want to hire me to do. And there was this really critical conversation that I had, um, a couple of years before I ended up leaving Kaplan, it was with one of the business unit CEOs there. And he, he offered me the opportunity to come work for him in his division and run a piece of the business to, you know, come run a PL. And I was, you know, really like knee jerk reaction dismissive. I was like, no, that's not, that's not what I do. That's not what Kaplan pays me to do. Um, you know, I'm not even sure I really fully considered it. Uh, so, you know, I, I didn't know it was a significant conversation at the time I realized it because it kind of got in my head that, um, you know, he saw me that way. And he even said, he's like, well, what do you see yourself doing in five years? Uh, Cause I see you being a really good CEO. And I was like, no, 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 no. I'm not, that's not me. That's not, that's not who I am. I mean, maybe, maybe a COO, maybe, you know, like number two to somebody, you know, really helping them execute on their plan. But it was just this, you know, I don't know this, this block that I didn't yet see myself that way. And I have thought a ton about it and, you know, why did yeah, he, he was exactly right. I mean, he saw what, you know, what I would become, what I could become. Why didn't I believe him? Why did it take a few more years? I think it did have to do with something that a lot of women struggle with. You know, I, I, I was watching all of these men, all of the CEOs that I had worked with up until then were men. And I guess I, I didn't relate enough. I didn't connect enough to see that, you know, I could, I could do that too. I could be, you know, maybe a different kind of a CEO. So I needed, I guess, a little more literal of a role model for myself before I kind of came around to it. And now, um, you know, I've, st- I've stayed close with him and he gives me a hard time that he, uh, you know, it was definitely, and I told you so moment for him a few years later when I did become a CEO. Well, that's so great that he saw something in you that you were just beginning to see in yourself. And I imagine mm-hmm. now you can is I imagine that's one of the pieces of a good boss is seeing in others what they don't see in themselves. You know, what was it that really inspired you to, to write the book, The Good Boss? When when I started writing this book, I actually thought it was going to be something a little different. It came out of these mentoring conversations that I was having with younger women. So once I became a CEO, you know, I'd get asked for advice. How did you do it? What are your recommendations? And you know, I started writing about that. I thought, well, there aren't enough female leaders out there, right? Like five, five, 5% of of fortune 500 CEOs are women. So I thought, you know, there's never going to be enough women leaders, or it's going to be a long time before there's enough that every young woman could actually have a a real live mentor, um, who's a female. So I'm going to write this book that's going to, you know, amplify it. And I'm going to write down all the advice that I have so that, you know, any, any young woman who wants to can read it. And I started writing it and, uh, you know, I really recognized something that I did not like about my advice, which was a lot of it was about how to adapt yourself, how to, how to maneuver, uh, in, 
in the world of business, you know, in the, in the world of men, in some cases, you know, how, how to sort of make yourself acceptable and accepted in, uh, in the companies that you were navigating. And I, I just, I didn't want it to be that. Um, and, and, and so I shifted and, you know, it was, it was recognizing that flaw. And I think also as I became more and more comfortable, confident in my own CEO roles, recognizing like the real power that you have when you're leading a company, I just started to, to feel like, you know, the, I I don't want to write this book for women telling them what to do and how to adapt themselves. I want to write it for managers and bosses and tell them what they need to do uh, and how they need to take responsibility because they're the ones with the power to actually change the environment. So it, it came out of that about, you know, wanting to, you know, shift the burden from women to the, to the people who are responsible for them in their careers. Is that still a challenge? Maybe not only for, for yourself, or, but for people in general, is how much do I adapt myself to the environment, which is in a way accepting the norms and culture as it is, versus being authentic and also trying to, to shift the culture by being who we are called to be as well? It always is. It's still a challenge for me. It's still something where, you know, I'm, I think I'm much more aware as I, as I keep on moving forward in my career of those moments where, you know, I, I, I think of how I'm being perceived and, you know, I catch myself sort of, you know, being extra careful about what I say or how I say it. And, you know, it's something that I, I actually noticed when I was writing this book. So there, there's a lot of other CEOs and leaders who are featured in the book, who I interview about their strategies, their experiences. And so, you know, when you, when you're in the final stages of writing a book, you go back around and, and you ask everyone to, you you show them what you wrote of their words and you ask them to sign a release for the book. Right. So when I did that, I noticed this interesting, um, unintentional AB test that I ran where all, uh, to, to hundred percent, all of the male CEOs and leaders just very quickly, you know, replied back like, yep, looks great. Here you go. Here's, you know, here's my signature. Great. You know, let me know when the book comes out. And every female leader to hundred percent had at least one, if not multiple rounds of edits of, can you change this word? Could you, could you say, could you, could I say this instead of that? You know, we're much more careful and thoughtful about not just the substance of what they said, but how exactly they said it. And I, and I thought it was really representative to me of this ongoing challenge that a lot of women face that, you know, they are, they, they, they have to be careful about, you know, how their words are perceived and received, not just about the substance of what they say. That's incredibly insightful. Thank you so much for sharing that. It's something that I imagine people don't know and notice is that that wall, that analysis, like, is this the right thing? How will this impact how I'm perceived and it's happening? And it sounds like based on that, you know, micro, and it's probably a macro as well, that, that men don't necessarily have that self-regulation or self-awareness. Not that they don't, but I don't know if that's the right word. Yeah. Yeah. Self-regulation. I mean, I, I like that word for it. I, I think that's what it is or self-discipline. Um, and, and I think it's that, you know, men, men don't have to, to the same degree as women, you know, it's not, you know, I've, I've certainly been, been accused in my lifetime of maybe overanalyzing things. Um, but it's, it's not just that it's not, you know, it's not just me I'm overthinking or I'm being too careful. It's for a reason. It's because, you know, you see as a woman, what a difference it can make in your success, whether it's, you know, 
negotiating a salary or something like that, you know, you see that it matters a lot what you say, how you ask. So you, you, I think you, you know, you internalize it and you become more and more careful. It's amazing how those little details reveal much more about the whole pattern at large. Mm-hmm. And of course, we're talking about generality. So we're not saying all people, all men, all women, yes. of course, but we're looking at tendencies overall, which gives us insight on where we're at. What are some other realities that, that men and men or women may not be aware of that women go through in, in the workplace? That, that we should be aware of. Yeah, I think that there's, you know, there's, there's been a lot, a lot written, which, which I think is good that that people are becoming more aware of it about the, uh, the dynamics of speaking in meetings and um, being heard, being given, you know, who gets credit for ideas. There, you know, I, I learned a new term at, at some point along the way of researching this, which is he heating. When you know a woman has said something in a meeting, and then a man repeats it, you know, a little more loudly, or um, you know, in a way that that it suddenly is his idea, not her idea. Um, there's a lot of a, a lot of that dynamic happens in meetings. I, I write a bit about it in a book. I really like an example from uh, David Siegel, the CEO of Meetup, and how he has he has really been deliberate in changing the way meetings are run to um, to give to give not just women, but introverts is how he talks about it to give, give people who don't naturally have loud voices or, um, you know, naturally feel like the types who jump in and interject or talk over people to give everybody a chance an equal chance to have their ideas be heard. But that that's something that a lot of women do encounter is that, you know, that, that dynamic in, in meetings or in conversations where, um, you know, unless, unless you talk a lot louder than, you know, you're, you're not necessarily comfortable with it, your natural voice volume, um, you know, or unless you get comfortable interrupting and talking over people, which is, you know, not a natural tendency for, for a lot of women, um, you know, you, you're at a disadvantage in terms of getting, getting your ideas to be heard. You already shared like your transition from mentoring younger women and professionals and saying, hey, here's how you can adapt and mold yourself to fit into this environment and to kind of switching the rules and let's let's change the culture overall. Mm-hmm. Why do you think some bosses struggle in in mentoring and helping, uh, you know, women reach their full potential in the, in the corporate world? There's, there's a couple of different things I've noticed. One is, you know, I think, well, I think it's important to say that most, most managers, most bosses really genuinely want to do better. They want to do more to support women, you know, men absolutely included. And, you know, a lot of the men that I interviewed and and talked with about this book, I think are, they they don't want to seem inauthentic. They, you know, they they're, they're sensitive to like, I don't want to be the guy who comes in like, well, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to take care of this. I'm going to get you what you need. You know, there's this nervousness that, that I think emerges over time where you want to be supportive, but you want to make sure you do it in the right way. And you don't come off as being like, you know, presumptive or, or thinking that, you know, oh, you're, you're the answer to her, to her problem. So I think there's this hesitation from a lot of managers, especially men, where they don't want to come off as obnoxious um, or as, you know, thinking that they're, they're the answer. Um, so that holds, that holds bosses back for sure. I think another thing that 
holds, you know, maybe all humans back is uh, giving direct, honest feedback, right? Like that's, I mean, that's a whole topic. It's really hard. I think everybody struggles with it, um, no matter what their level with, you know, really giving that honest feedback, especially when it's critical. And I think that dynamic takes on an outsized discomfort when gender is brought in as well. And I think that people can have these perceptions of women that, you know, might sound dated, but they still exist out there. If, you know, we, you know, can she handle it? I don't want to be mean. You know, I, I feel like I need to be polite. So, you know, sometimes that can be a downfall for managers of women that they're you know, a little too careful or a little too chivalrous is maybe the way to say it. Um, you know, instead of just being honest when I think we all know, even though we know it could be hard to do that, you know, honesty is almost always the, you know, the best thing to do as a manager. So with, with feedback, if you mind me explore a little bit, is there a different way that you feel in your experience that women prefer to receive feedback than, than men, or is it universal that we just want honest, direct feedback, like you're saying? Yeah, I think that it's universal. I think, I think most women, when you ask them say they'd rather just be spoken to like the men are, um, it, and they're very conscious and aware of when that's not happening. I mean, I, you know, I I've definitely felt that throughout my own career too, that like, oh, he's, he's being a little nicer to me than he was to the guys. Like he jokes around with them or he teases them. He gives them a harder time. Um, and you know, you, you notice that when, you know, you see the guys getting that and then to you, you know, you give a presentation and then it's, you know, just like, thank you, Kate. Um, it's you know, too polite. So I, I, I think that, that most women just want to be treated the same. I could see how that can create an exclusivity, you know, us versus them and an outsider kind of perspective. If, if there's one, you know, behavior that you could banish and wave a magic wand that would be from the workplace, what would it be for, for men or women? I think we can look at it that way too. Uh, one behavior. That's such a good question. Um, <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm going to go back to the basic one. So, so the first chapter of my book is, is all about names, getting names, right. And, um, you know, as, as we were talking about that, that difference in, you know, the banter that, you know, sometimes you see among men and women feel left out. One, one of the biggest things is that men often get much more often get addressed by their last name. And that can be, you know, that can just be a nickname, you know, like, Hey Walker, uh, that doesn't happen with women. And I think whether it's banishing, banishing the using of the last names or, you know, making it universal. Um, I think that if everybody, if everybody equally used the last name nickname across men and women, it would make a huge, huge, huge difference. Um, because sometimes it's about just that equalizing the, yeah, the comfort and the friendliness, but it also can be about conveying respect The you know, when you refer to there's really interesting studies where you realize that male professors get referred to by their last name, you know, more than 50% as often as female professors and, and scientists, it's even more so political politicians, the same. So you, this, the last name thing, I think is a big one that if everybody just were, you know, more aware and didn't, didn't overuse it with one gender versus the other, I, I think it would make a big difference. And it's, and that's the kind of, that's the kind of thing, the kind of change that I love because it, it's very doable, right? Like it, it doesn't require people to, you know, intrinsically change their personalities. It, it's just something to remember. 
that's that's really fascinating so that simple thing it doesn't seem like a big deal but and of course it's none of these things are intentional these are often unconscious biases that we have but calling uh, a male colleague versus a female colleague by last name versus first name could also be a power thing too as Mm -hmm. well as an affinity like inner circle Mm -hmm. versus outer circle and closeness and so by becoming aware of that simple thing you can dramatically create more inclusivity versus exclusivity sounds like in the organization yeah yeah. yeah. And, you know, and, you know, when you said that, it, it just made me think, I wonder if sometimes the, the hesitation to do it with women is I know people get tripped up about, wait, is she miss or misses or Ms. And so I've, I've seen that too. I'm realizing where it might be, you know, Mr. Ryan, but you know, for me, it's like, wait, I don't know if I'm supposed to call her Ms. Walker or Mrs. Walker. So I'm just going to call her Kate. Um, and I, th- I think that, yeah, there's, oh, there's so much you could, I mean, that it's the longest chapter in the book, I think is my, my chapter about names. And at one point I was like, I think I could write a whole book about this. It's really incredible when you dig in all of those little kind of microaggressions that, that occur around names. Totally. You're nailing it right there. Microaggressions. It, it is. It's subtle, but it's felt. It's, it's mm-hmm. an experience there. And names yep. are identity. Like this is like the core of who we yes. are. Yep. Such mm-hmm. a, I, yes. Please write that book. We'll have you back. Yeah. I mean, you must get, do people call you Ryan? Like they, they do. You, you have the first name, last name phenomenon. They do. First name. And, all. Yeah. First names. Yep. And it's grading, right? Like when you're like, I, my name is not Ryan, it's John. Like, I think that, you know, it's like, pay attention. I, I think there's, yeah, there's there's a lot to it. What does a an organization look like with good bosses? Like if you had organizations with all good bosses, like what does that actually look like? If you had an organization full of good bosses, I think that you would get first of all, so much more work done uh, because you wouldn't have to spend so much time navigating these things, thinking about these things, thinking about how you say what you say. I think that you would um, just, you know, be incredibly productive for one. I also think you'd, um, you'd have really happy employees because everyone would be themselves. You know, I think that when I think of my most fun work experiences over my career, it's when I, I really had authentic friendships and, um, you know, you, when people know you, they really know you and they respect you for who you are. Uh, you have more fun together. You trust each other more. And, um, you know, it's really, those are the places where, you know, on a Friday evening, you're maybe all going to hang out and go get a drink together instead of, you know, rushing to finish your last meeting and, and get back to your outside lives. I think there is, um, you know, people have different views about, about this, the sort of blending of social and work. Like I personally am a big believer that they, they have to be blended. I mean, you, you have to be the, the whole person that you are in the workplace. And I think if you, if you had a company full of good bosses that would come through, everybody would really genuinely know each other and, and like each other. And that takes some work. It does take yes. some intention. Yeah. Speaking uh, of work, what are some first steps you'd recommend to leaders in general who are wanting to become better bosses and to specifically support uh, women in their organization? 
So I think that the best place to start is by being authentic yourself, like really, you know, being opening up more, really talking about yourself, your, you know, your weaknesses, your vulnerabilities, just your, your life, who you are inside and outside of work. I think that it starts there. I think if you're more open and again, always remembering as a leader, like you have more power, you set the tone to some degree. So I always recommend to start there, to start by, you know, being, being more open about yourself and then people you'll find people then will come forward more and they'll, they'll approach you and they'll feel like they can, you know, talk to you about whatever's on their minds. If, if you take the first step. Fantastic. This might be a different direction, but can you share with us a little bit, like, what's it really like for moms when they're returning back to work after having children. Uh, I don't know if I've ever heard that explored before or talked about it. I would love to see if you might share some insights on that. Yeah. Coming, coming back to work after, after having any baby, but especially after your first, uh, it's, uh, it's very surreal. I mean, you like the, the first for, for me, but for a lot of women that I've spoken to those first three months of being a mom and having this baby, you are like really immersed in caring for that newborn. And, um, you know, you kind of lose a bit of yourself and your identity and especially your professional identity. If you're, if you're on leave that whole time. And so the, the day you come back, the first weeks that you're back, you're, reorienting, um, to, you know, to who you were, you're reconciling who you were with who you are. And, uh, you know, and there's, there's a lot going on in your, in your head about that. And there's a lot of conflict. Um, you feel very pulled back to this baby who's at home and who needs you and you, you know, and, and, and you want to, you want to be there and care for them, but you also feel this really kind of excitement, this rush in getting to be an independent person again for the first time in a few months and getting to, you know, add value in society in different ways. I mean, there's, you know, it's, you know, I've joked about this with a lot of women. I mean, you, you literally, you're excited in that first week back in the office that like, you can go to the bathroom whenever you want to, like you're not on somebody else's schedule. Um, so you're feeling this pull back and forth. And I think that what happens to a lot of women is the pull feels stronger from home than from work. And, and, you know, I write about this in the book that there are really critical ways that a boss can, you know, help or harm in, in the, in that first day back this first weeks back, you know, if you leave a woman on her return from leave to, um, to her own devices, to kind of re-carve out a space for herself to figure out what work is needed, you know, what, what have other people been covering? What does she need to take back? If you leave her to her own devices to kind of make herself useful again, she's not going to feel as strong of a pull from, you know, from the office as she is from the home. Whereas if you really immerse her right back into it and you're like, Oh, so glad you're back. We've been, you know, waiting for you. We really need you to pick up these things. Uh, if you sort of help her jump right back in, then, then it'll equalize and it'll help her find her balance. Cause it's, it's, it's always a balance. I mean, you know, I'm my, my older daughter is now 12. So I've been, you know, figuring out working motherhood for over a decade now, and it is still, it's, it's a little bit of a seesaw and, you know, there are many moments where you have to find your balance, but you know, you, you definitely need to feel and want to feel the pull in both directions. So 
bringing them in, embracing them, getting them back to work and and showing mm-hmm. appreciation and validation. Like, wow, we're so great to have you back and helping them feel included. I imagine as part of that too. And yes. jumping right in, head in because, because their head is going to be pulled emotionally, psychologically, all those things, biologically as well, back to their child. Yeah. And yeah, that's need- the important thing. Sorry, go ahead. No, I was going to say they, they need to feel needed. They need to feel needed and necessary in the workplace. That's, you know, that's something that I, you know, I remember in my first week back feeling almost the opposite. Like you feel this panic, like, oh, they, they figured out how to get by without me for 12 weeks. So, you know, now maybe I'm not needed here anymore. And, you know, I I think that can be the beginning of of the decisions that some women end up making to leave the workforce after that first baby. You know, it's, it's, it's not typically that, you know, a woman goes on leave and doesn't come back. The, you know, the statistics show that the, the departures from the workforce happen, happen later, you know, sometime in that first year of coming back to the workplace. And I think it's, about this question of, do you feel needed? Do you feel important at work? If you don't, well, you certainly feel needed and important somewhere else. Mm, Love that. Going back to identity, feeling needed, feeling wanted, all those types of things. I love that. Mm -hmm, Thank you for mm -hmm. sharing that insight. What if, when, when women come back to work and they want to feel needed, of course, they want to be part of the team and feel valued in that sense. If they're not getting the support, if they're not getting that, and it could not just be just about coming back from the workforce, but just in general, if they're not getting the support they need, how do you recommend they approach leadership and and managers to try to get the support they're actually looking for in their job? I think that you know, one thing that I always recommend is to be very clear uh, that you want more work that, you know, that you, that you're ready and able to take on more. Um, I, I just had a conversation with, with a woman who works for me now, who, who's pregnant. And, uh, she said to me, you know, totally proactively, well, I just, I want you to know that I'm definitely coming back. And, you know, and I, and I said, I want you to know that I had no doubt that you were, I assumed that you were, but I think it's great when, you know, you say that don't, don't leave anybody wondering or guessing, be very clear. I, you know, I want to be here. And if you come back and you're, you know, you're flailing a little bit and you're not finding your, your place again in the organization, I think asking for more work is, um, you know, from, from the woman's perspective, the best way to do it, right? Like that's, you know, you're not, um, you know, criticizing others or saying, or yeah, it's, 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 it's a much more targeted, you know, give me a good project. Give me something to work on. I need more. Um, that's very actionable. It's a very mm-hmm. actionable request. And I think that that's then also at the heart of what, um, you know, what your managers, what your bosses should be doing. It's and, and it's a little counterintuitive for some people. I think that where things can go wrong is managers feel like they're supposed to be uh, sensitive and they're supposed to recognize that, you know, you, you've been out, you're a new mom. Maybe you, you know, maybe you need to ease into things. Maybe you need some time. Um, and I always say like, you know, maybe, but let her, let her tell you that if, if, you know, if it's too much and that's what she needs. Otherwise, I think it's generally always better to assume that she, you know, she wants to do it. So is that a conversation that, a manager needs to have them, would you recommend say, Hey, listen, tell me what you need. Are you ready to jump in? Do you want to ease in or what's the approach that's best for you right now? Is that a respectful way to go? I think that's great to have that direct conversation. Yeah. Yeah. I'd probably, um, you know, I'd probably want to lean it towards like, I, you know, 
I'm so ready for you to come back. I've mm-hmm. got, you know, I've got 10 things waiting for you. How are you feeling? Do you want all of them at once? Or, you know, do you, do you want a phase of it? I'm fine either way, but, you know, always let them know that, you know, you've got, a, you, there, there's a lot for them to do here. Um, so, but, but I like the idea of having that direct conversation of, yeah, asking, asking how much of it do you want, you know, what, and what do you need from me? Well, I love that distinction you just made because I, I was looking at it from an ambivalent either way, but you're saying, no, bring that pressure in because they have the pressure of the the family yes. life, bring that yeah. pressure in. And you can still be okay either way, but bring that pressure in to let them know that they're needed, validated, and a huge part of the team. Definitely, definitely. And also, you know, know that it's, it's, it's in her head. Maybe it always wasn't mine that you don't, you know, when someone says, do you, do you need more time or you don't have to go on that trip if you don't want to, you hear it as, you know, oh, they don't think I'm as good as I used to be, or, or I'm not as good of a worker as that guy over there. So it, even though it's not intended to send that message, it's supposed, it's intended to be considerate. Uh, it can, you know, have that effect of making her feel like, oh, I'm not perceived to be as much of a go-getter as I used to be. The nuance of language. It is mm-hmm. unbelievably awesome and ever-changing. It's fantastic. You know, <laughs> obviously here at uh, Key Conversations, we think like we've been talking about having these types of conversations is really critical. It's key. What are some key conversations that you've had in your life, either personally or professionally, that have you know significantly impacted you and where you are today? Oh, I love that question. So so a couple of years ago, I had this conversation that I think you know, it, it changed me a lot. And it was, um, you know, I was still relatively new to running presence learning and a woman who, who worked, who worked, who still works at the company came to me and, you know, I'd only met her once briefly. I didn't know her very well. And, you know, she, she asked for time to talk with me and she said that she had been reading some of my writing where I had talked about, you know, my own battles with, uh, speaking up and being heard and asserting myself more and you know, feeling like I was a part of conversations. And so she said, you know, I read that and I really connected with it. And I thought you'd want to know that I connected with it because that's how I'm made to feel right here at presence learning. And so it was, you know, this moment for me where I recognized a couple of things. Number one, you know, again, back to that importance of being vulnerable. Like if I hadn't been open and shared about my struggles, you know, I don't think she ever would have felt comfortable coming to me and telling me how she was feeling at this company that I was running. Um, and so, you know, you're always, you always, as a leader, like you, you need to know what's really going on. And for that, you've got to be trusted and you've got to be, you know, accessible, um, for people to really tell you the truth. And so it was, you know, recognition of like, okay, it's really important to be, to be very honest myself so that people do feel like they can trust me. They can come to me. So that, that was one thing, but the bigger thing was, I just realized, you know, you can, as a leader, you can say the right things about how you want your company to be and how you want people to act, but that doesn't mean it's happening everywhere. You have to, and to make sure that it is, you've got to be listening, asking, you know, getting involved and interacting, and you've got to jump in. And, you know, in that, in that case, 
um, you know, it led to me getting more involved in areas that I wouldn't have otherwise known needed to change in terms of the culture and, you know, the, the way that we were having conversations and interacting and the way that we were giving opportunities for career development. So uh, it, it's just, it's always, you know, it made a huge difference in, in how I, you know, managed the company that, that I'm in and that I'm still leading, but it also just has really stuck with me that, you know, it's not enough to give speeches and say, uh, you know, what kind of leaders you want people to be. You've got to actually get in there and, and make sure that, that people are connecting that to the day-to-day -day actions that they're taking. I love that. Thank you for circling all the way back to the importance of authenticity yeah. and having congruence. It's wonderful. Kate, thanks so much for being here. It's been an incredible pleasure. What's the best way for our listeners and our viewers to get in touch with you? And of course, to, to buy the good boss. Yeah. So, so my website is kateeberlywalker.com. So you can get in touch with me that way. You can get lots of information about the book. And of course the book itself is on sale in, you know, your favorite booksellers everywhere. So I'd love for everyone to pick up a copy and then reach out to me through the website and tell me what you think about it. Wonderful. Thanks so much for being here. Thank you so much. And thank you all for watching and listening. Until next time, develop yourself, empower others, and lead by example. Thanks for listening to Key Conversations for Leaders with your host, John Ryan. If you enjoyed the show, please let us know. Give us a rating or write a review. And if you'd like to connect with me and other like-minded leaders, I invite you to join our Facebook group called Develop, Empower, and Lead, where I deliver free live training every week. If you go to developempowerlead.com, it will redirect you right there. Hope to see you there soon.